Okay, so yeah, welcome to the second episode of、uh, the Lacrosse Thinkers podcast. And today we have the honor to have Dr. Scott Cooper from the biology department to join us. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Okay, so I find this topic on the first year freshman seminar topics, and that sounds really interesting. It talk about、uh, living on the edge, the、mm. organisms in extreme environment. So can you tell us a little bit about what kind of organisms and what kind of extreme environment do you mean there? Well, actually, in the class we cover、um, all, all range of organisms from、uh, bacteria and microbes all the way up to mammals. So all sorts of organisms adapt to extreme environments, and those extremes can be anywhere from、um, high or low temperature,、uh, pressure, lack of oxygen,、um, living in, in very dry climates, things like that. So. Adapting all sorts of different physiological extremes, basic or physical extremes. Basically, anywhere we look for life on the planet, we find it. Interesting. So,、uh, am I? Is it fair for me to say, like the 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 how to say the more advanced the animals are, like compared to like mammals compared to bacteria, the less adapted they are to the environment, or actually the stronger they are. Uh, uh, well, definitely the the microbes have an advantage. You know,、uh-huh. being single celled, they can go dormant for a long time.、Uh, they, th- their physiology can they can make it very very simple if they need to. So I would say that yeah, there there are actually、um, so there are three domains of life now: bacteria, archaea, and then eukaryotes. So、uh-huh. eukaryotes are the ones that have a nucleus, and the archaea are the are the often called extremophiles. Um, so ophile just means they they like it or love it, and so、uh-huh. they they're the ones we can find in the most extreme environments, like living in deep sea thermal vents, you know, with hundreds of atmospheres of pressure, and high temperatures, and in bubbling hydrogen sulfide, you know, so like conditions that any one of those would kill any mammal on the planet,、uh-huh. um, they can survive in all three.、Um, But that said, for how complex mammals are, we find them adapting to all sorts of, you know, very extreme environments. Can you give me some examples about mammals? I'm particularly Ma- interested、mammals? in that. Yeah. Sure. Well, the ones that I work on、um, the, are、uh, hibernating ground squirrels.、Um, uh-huh. So these are、uh, about twice the size of a chipmunk.、Um, they're the, the if you are a Mi- UW,、um, I'm sorry, a University of Minnesota fan.、Um, that's the golden gopher. Uh, oh, okay, so they're okay, actually okay, not a、yeah. gopher. If you ever see a gopher, you'll totally know the difference between the gophers are big moles. So the ground squirrels are about like a big chipmunk, about twice the size of a chipmunk, and、um, they can hibernate in the winter. And they'll go down. So hiber、uh, is the Latin root for winter.、Mm-hmm. So they basically overwinter, and、uh, they do it to avoid、um, food or I'm sorry, scarcity of food. So it's in in the prairie in the winter time. There's nothing for them to eat. There's two feet of snow, so they burrow down under the ground. And they'll live off body fat for six months. And to do this, they curl up in a little ball and, and go into torpor. And torpor is their body temperature drops to about four degrees. So they're normal. Are you talking about Fahrenheit?、Uh, Celsius. Yeah. So,、okay. so they're yeah, forty ref-、uh, degrees Fahrenheit. So refrigerator temperature.、Um, and normally, their body temp would be like us, be thirty-seven degrees Celsius, about ninety-six degrees Fahrenheit. So they're dropping their temperature from. Like your body temperature down to refrigerator, like pulling you know yogurt out of the fridge,、uh-huh. it's that temperature,、um, and their heart rate slows down dramatically,、um, their respiratory rate drops dramatically.、Um, most other mammals, their pacemaker in your heart would stop at about 15 degrees Celsius. Their heart keeps beating,、um, so they've adapted to temperatures again that would kill most mammals.、Uh, they, the whole body temperature can get down、uh, like that, but then. 
their uh, metabolic demand is about 2% of normal. So they can make huh. it for six months just off body fat. So 2% as normal, that's almost like 6% divided by 50, uh, six months divided by 50. That's like yeah, how much they exactly. need for, in yep. terms of days, right? Yep. yep. So they'll still be burning fat. Uh, they don't drink the whole time. They're getting all their water from the fat they burn. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable adaptation. Where can we find those kind of squirrels? I've never seen one. Oh, uh, they're around here. They live it's in Wisconsin. Here? Yeah, we, we, okay. we catch ours at the Trempolo Golf Course. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And yeah. then we bring them into the lab, and then it's like raising a lab animal. And then we put them in a little Tupperware boxes and put them in the fridge in the winter. And they they spend six months in a refrigerator. And then when they wake up in the spring, we take them back out again. Totally makes sense because I think here during the winter, actually, if you go outside, it's much more lower, much lower temperature oh, than yeah. in the refrigerator. Right? Yeah, no, so. we tell people, you know, 40 degrees, and they think that it's not the freezer, it's a refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. But in Wisconsin, a refrigerator in the winter would be warm. Hmm. Um, and it's actually about the temp. If they go down a couple feet underground, uh, that's about the, the temperature that the ground would be. Okay. So, and then they're in a little box, which would be like being in a hole. So it's actually very much simulates the burrow they would be in in the winter. Okay. Yeah. So what do you think made them to have those kind of capacities to survive mm -hmm. in such a environment? Yeah. That's a good question, yeah. So we actually think the ancestral mammal probably could hibernate. Um, so if you go way back you know, to when all mammals had a common ancestor, that organism probably could hi hibernate. And it, it could have been to avoid food scarcity. It could have been to avoid predators for long you know, periods of time. Um, because we actually see hibernation in most mammals, uh, mm -hmm. most um, uh, branches of mammals. So we see it in bats. They're primates or lemurs that can hibernate. Um, several rodents. Um, uh, yeah, so all sorts of different animals can, can go into some type of hibernation. So the question was, did hibernation arise a whole bunch of times, or was it in the ancestor and it disappeared? Um, the other thing with hibernators is the traits that allow them to hibernate are actually similar to traits we see in neonates, like newborns, and they've just maintained these traits. So the idea is that um, all organisms had this, they have it even when they're a newborn, uh, but then m most mammals lose it, and, uh, and the ones that are hibernating have maintained them. Um, so for example, to warm up, a hibernating squirrel has huge brown fat deposits mm -hmm. um, on their back, and they can mobilize those. They can burn those to warm back up. So they'll go from um, 40 degrees um, Fahrenheit to 97 degree Fahrenheit body temp in two hours. Okay. So they can warm their whole body up 30, well, I, I always have to think Fahrenheit or Celsius. Uh, in, in Fahrenheit, they could warm their body temperature up about 50 degrees in, in just a couple of hours. So that's a huge amount of energy to have to burn. If you think of, like, if you get cold, your body temp has probably dropped a degree, uh -huh. you know, and how much energy you need to warm back up again. Yeah, they're going orders of magnitude. Larger. So it's basically like a wake-up system when they see the temperatures getting better, right? Yeah, yeah it'll actually be when, because they're in their burrow when they wake up. So their temp is still the same and it's dark. Um, so there's actually, we don't know exactly the programming that gets them to come out, mm -hmm. but it's not based on light or temperature because they're in the cold and dark when they wake up. Um, so there's something, some kind of circadian rhythm that's built in there. Um, Somehow they, they know. They, they, yeah. Huh. They, and it could be metabolic that they're starting to run out of energy. And so, so they, they wake have to up. wake up. They have to wake up. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So tell me like the toughest organisms you know. Sure. Well, again, I, I think the archaea are definitely the toughest. Um, so, you know, with bacteria, it's hard to compete with them. And, mm -hmm. and we find them, like I said, everywhere. They've been digging down miles under dirt. 
it, like underground and they'll find bacteria. There are even some worms they're finding down, so even some animals uh-huh. they're finding down there. Um, so probably the toughest would be the one I described. I don't remember the species name, but the, the some of the bacteria that can live in these um, uh, deep sea thermal vents. So it's basically where the molten lava is kind of coming up to the surface of the seabed. Mm-hmm. And so all this hydrogen sulfide and everything is coming out of these tubes. And the bacteria can live right in that. And then there are worms that live just outside of that that are feeding on the bacteria. So there's no sunlight down uh, down in these trenches. This is all, um, they call them chemoautotrophs, so that they're living off the chemicals. Uh-huh. They're down there, there's no sunlight. And then there are animals around that, that feed off the bacteria that are growing in these, these deep-sea wow. thermal vents. Um, they're also under, like I said, many atmospheres of pressure. Like we don't even have submersibles that can get down that deep without being crushed. Uh-huh. And there are whole ecosystems living down there. I shouldn't say we, we don't have manned submersibles we can get down. We can get unmanned submersibles down that far. But, yeah, the, we can't get manned ones down. Um, it would crush anything we could make. So when I think about those kind of things, it's like these are pretty tough ones, right? These because they really lived tough. in a tough condition for millions of years or something like that. Right, yep. What will happen if you put those kind of tough ones into a nice environment? Yeah. Are they going to just outcompete everybody? No, actually, it's a very good question. Actually, most of them would die. Um, we have that problem if we try to bring um, fish and things up from really deep uh, um, cold conditions up to the surface. Uh, they're adapted to that environment, and they'll actually die under those low pressures. So um, it's not like tough or not tough. It's more about my yeah. environment and your environment. Exactly. Are totally different. Yep. We have fish in the art in the Antarctic that um, don't actually have red blood cells. They have they have they they have blood that circulates, but there are no cells in it because uh, the, their oxygen dissolves better in cold water. So there's so much oxygen in that Arctic water that oh. they actually don't need red cells to move oxygen around through their tissues. If you put them in a warmer environment, um, they'll die because they can't take up oxygen. There's huh. not enough oxygen in the water for them to survive. Um, yeah, so there are organisms that are adapted to a particular environment. Um, just because they're adapted to that tough environment doesn't mean they're tougher than other critters. They're just adapted to that ecosystem. So let's say, like, with all this kind of research going on with all these tough creatures, mm-hmm. how will that thing benefit us, like, other than research point of view, sure. knowing where we yeah. come from? Right. No, there, there are lots of good examples of that. So, um, yeah, all. We've, we actually have benefited a lot from this type of research already. Um, but just to go back to the ground squirrels, um, one of the th- several things we could look at with humans, if you could put humans into a state of torpor, right, you could reduce their metabolic demands. Uh, that has applications um, in surgeries and transplants, things like that, right, because you could slow their metabol- a, a human's metabolism down give you time to treat a disease and then Reduce bring the them bleeding, back up. Probably. They do that a little yeah. bit right now with um, some brain surgeries. They'll chill the patient. Uh, they'll chill their head or something like that to slow down uh, the, the meta- metabolism. They're really only dropping their body, their temperature a few degrees. So they're not really going down into a deep torpor, but it, but it does help. Um, if you could really get a person into stasis like that, you could use it for space travel, right? So all the oh, shows yeah. where you know the astronauts are in their little chambers yeah. uh that would help um yeah you could you could get so that thing's not sci-fi anymore well it's it's sci-fi in terms of we we could get somebody chill somebody down getting them back out again is the hard part right okay. so you could you could freeze a person yep get thawing them back out and having them be normal is mm-hmm. the hard part but th- but there are people looking at that um we've already benefited from some of the ex- 
studying extreme organisms, um, there's a, a reaction we use a lot in medicine and biotechnology called the polymerase chain reaction, it, or PCR. So it was in all the, um, if you watch those CSI shows where they're taking little cheek swabs from somebody, uh -huh. then they go back and run it in a machine and it, it looks at their DNA. Uh -huh. That uses this technique. And the only reason it works is... Um, to do those steps, you have to heat the sample up a lot and then cool it and heat it and cool it. Um, and enzymes normally can't survive that, but it's based on an enzyme from a bacteria that they got from the hot springs in Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. It could live in these geysers, and so its enzymes were adapted to that heat. And so they use that enzyme now in those reactions. Um, oh, Because they okay. can take the cheek sample from a person, and that enzyme will make copies of its DNA, and then we can get enough to actually tell, do a, a blood test or something like that. Um, so, yeah, there are definitely applications we've already gotten from from studying these extremophiles. Yeah. Is there a way you can see, like, we can sp even speed up the thing up to a level that we can start genetic engineering something or just start breeding things together? Sure. So we can take um, pieces of DNA from one organism and put them into another. Um, for some things that might help them adapt to a different environment, I think we do that already with plants. So they're mm -hmm. breeding plants that are more resistant to all sorts of things, but drought and pesticides and all sorts of things. Um, a lot of the adaptations, though, that we see in organisms aren't a single gene, right? So it's a whole suite of things that mm -hmm. they've had to do to adapt to those extreme environments. So the example I use for, for PCR with the bacteria from the hot spring, we were just looking at one enzyme mm -hmm. that it used. Um, it has thousands of enzymes, you know, oh, okay. to, and all of them have to be adapted to the heat. Uh -huh. We just took one out to use it in, a, in an assay that's widely used now, like I said, in, in research and in medical applications, things like that, forensics. Um, so to actually, if we just put that one enzyme into another bacteria and then tried to throw it into a hot spring, it wouldn't survive because all of its other enzymes would not be adapted. So it's still like a reduction in them, like we just find one at a time as do yeah. a certain kind of function, yeah. but it's already it, beneficial enough. Exactly. Yeah. And there yeah. could be, these would be applications like outside of the cell that we're using. Um, but yeah, I think there are lots of different things we're learning um, about how organisms adapt to high altitude, um, to living in pre high pressures, uh, plants, for example, with high temperature. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, yeah, but we, the way I look at it, um, I use, use this analogy in class. Um, basically, nature's had three and a half billion years to run hundreds of millions of experiments with these different species and found species that can adapt to all sorts of different environments. Um, and it, they've come up with all sorts of novel ways to do that. And our trick as scientists who study comparative physiology is to go around and look at the experiments have already been run. Mm -hmm. Here's the result. Can you figure out, you know, how it works? So it's kind of just running around looking at nature, but looking at it with a little bit different eye mm -hmm. um, and saying, well, that's, you know, cool with this. Well, another example, there are frogs that live on the very northern end of their range, even around here, the spring peepers, the wood, wood frogs, you'll mm -hmm. hear them in the spring, you know, all the little mm -hmm. peeping. Um, they can actually freeze solid during the winter. Their heart stops, no brain activity. Um, you thaw them back out in the spring and their heart starts beating again and they basically come back to life. So these are amphibians that have learned how to survive in a very extreme environment as far north as an amphibian can go mm -hmm. um, and and still survive so there are lots of cool you know you make that observation then all sorts of questions come out of it you know how, how did they do it yeah how, yeah how do their cells not all get damaged by the ice how does a heart stop and then start beating again on its own you know mm -hmm. there's no little electric 
shocks or anything like that, no pacemaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how does their brain survive memories and things from being frozen? So they, they still have the behaviors before yeah. restoring their brain? They wake up that. and they start okay. singing and peeping and, huh. yeah, find a mate and find food. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It's fascinating to know, actually. Yeah, I never paid attention to so much, like, animals around me before. Like, I see frogs. I just see one frog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not different kinds. But yeah. I am actually surprised to see to, to, to hear that some frogs can do that. Which is totally beyond my imagination. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, no, so all, all sorts of organisms are adapted to this. So you have warm-blooded organisms, cold-blooded. So we call them, um, the warm-blooded would be endotherms. So they're, they, their temperature is determined by their internal body uh, For the heat, enzyme pr- to heat production. Yeah. Ectotherms, their body temperature is determined more by the outside temperature. So ecto for out. And they'll have different adaptations, right? So... Uh, a frog basically can't control its internal temperature at all, so it's going to just go down to whatever the outside is. Uh, a mammal could stay warm by burning more more food, but then it could run out of food. Hmm. Um, uh, you have different ways of getting oxygen. Um, so, you know, mammals have to breathe. We have lungs. Um, frogs can get air through their skin. Uh, turtles, uh, reptiles are in between, so turtles hibernate as well. They'll get down under the mud in the bottom of a lake. Um, and their heart rate will go down to just a couple beats per hour. Hmm. Um, and because they're underwater, they can't breathe it through their lungs. Um, they actually um, get oxygen exchanged through their butt. Really? So, so the, the skin's thin enough there. That's the one place they don't have their carapace or their shell. Uh-huh. And that's they get enough oxygen through that, and there's enough circulation that they can survive, you know, basically being underwater with no oxygen uh, and not taking a breath for months. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, so next time you see a turtle, you can appreciate <laughs> that. It can, it can breathe out of both ends. Yes. That actually reminds me because <laughs> one of my friends was a, basically a jerk, right? Yeah. He actually, there was one time he tried to electrify a turtle. Oh, geez. And the turtle actually started fur. So now I know where all the gas come from. Oh. It's like it's super bad smile. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that was a bad thing to do. But now, now it knowing sense. that, it yeah. makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay, so uh, personally, I'm very interested in outer space and all okay. the you know and sure. you know sp- uh, aliens and everything. Yeah, so yeah. I just came up with this idea after seeing the, this title is just like think about going to Mars yep. or just making Mars to be habitable even sure. before we go there. Yep. We can s- start to send animals or start to send some kind of organisms right. there. Yep. But because their environment is so severe, so yeah. can we actually breed on purpose for, uh-huh. for to engineer some kind of uh, sure. organism to send there to actually make that thing? Habitable for us. Yep. So, yeah. So, they, yeah, there are two questions there. One is, what could you actually send to Mars and have it still be alive when it got there? And then, what could actually live on Mars? Yep. Um, So, living on Mars would be a challenge. You probably wouldn't be able to do an animal Mm -hmm. because they need oxygen. Um, So, actually, probably, and also, there's very, very little water from what we know. There there could be some water. We're not actually even sure Mm -hmm. about that. so probably the thing to send first would be a lichen, that would be my guess. So a lichen is actually a symbiotic relationship. It's a fungus with an algae living inside of it. Okay. And it can grow on just pure rock. So there are lichens that live in Antarctica. Um, so it's kind of similar to what you might get in Mars uh, in terms of very low oxygen, very dry, potentially very cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, the algae living inside can do photosynthesis, so they can produce energy. And then the lichen, the fungal part, um, protects the the um, the algae, mm-hmm. and they're actually very resistant to radiation. Um, so one of the reasons for that is it 
we don't always think about this, but in, in Antarctica or the Arctic, um, they'll go through times of the year where they're in total darkness, but they'll go in times of the year it's 24 hours of daylight. So they get just bombarded with ultraviolet light during those really high photo period times to the point where it can actually start to damage life forms. Um, we think of plants as liking lots of light, but you, there's too much of a good thing as well. Uh -huh. um, so lichens would be very resistant to that. And because they have the um, algae in there, they actually would start producing oxygen. So if you could get them there and get them long enough and, it, and you got enough of an atmosphere going, I don't know you'd ever create enough of a, uh, to like colonize the whole planet, uh -huh. but if uh -huh. you could at least get some kind of a dome built and got some fungi and things growing in there for a while, you might be able to produce enough oxygen in there to, to start to, to do that. Um, you can create enough lichens to sustain life. Um, so that's what caribou and things eat up in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. um, it, it wouldn't be, you know, sitting down to a nice, you know, bunch of corn and mashed potatoes or something like that. Um, Where I'm on, on Mars, what do we expect? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But that would be one thing that could probably survive there. Um, in terms of animals that you could get there, um, so they're, 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 with animals we have um, uh, we have invertebrates, so those are animals that don't have a backbone. They're vertebrates mm -hmm. that could be that are, um, and then within the vertebrates you can have the ectotherms and the endotherms. So the simpler the organism, the more likely it would survive. You know, there are probably worms and things that we could send pretty easily to Mars because they can go into some type of stasis. They wouldn't need. They'd be very, very hardy once we got there. Uh -huh. Of course, we're the most interested in the warm-blooded vertebrates like us. Um, eventually. Eventually, yeah. yeah. So there, actually, I would make another argument again for the ground squirrel because um, the ground, or something that hibernates, it's small. Um, if you got it into, into torpor, into hibernation, if it can make it for six months, um, you're down to 2% your oxygen demand and your metabolic demand. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the costs on a, on a spaceship are life support. Um, you know, you have to, yep. to, to maintain all that. You could get by with 150th the life support you would need otherwise. And then when it got there, if you timed it right, it would come out of torpor and be awake and running around. Um, also, they've shown that animals, when they're in torpor, are more resistant to radiation. Um, and the reason is... Uh, for radiation to cause damage to cells, it needs oxygen. So if you're in a low oxygen state, the radiation uh, causes less damage. So if you, okay. get a, if you get a radiation while you're in torpor, it damages you less than if you're awake. Um, and there's lots of cosmic rays that would tend to pass through spaceships and things, um, no matter how kind of shielding you put on them, as you're probably aware of. Um, so actually, a hibernating mammal would probably be the best thing okay. to send now what they do once they get there i'm not sure you know you, you yeah other than consume what's what yeah, the food is there yeah, which is eat, eat eventually lichen, for us <laughs> eat lichens i guess but if you wanted to show that a mammal could make it that would be the one to probably start with that's beautiful because i i actually i was a big follower of the biosphere experiment yeah, yeah. so i was thinking like you well you put a box you put everything that you can put in to make it like a sustainable environment yep. and then finally this thing can sustain itself in a glass box which mm -hmm. only consume from externally, only consume right. sunlight. Then you can actually send the whole box to yeah. Mars and try to see how long they can survive. But now, actually, we don't even need a box, right? We just right. need a one type of thing, send yeah. it there, if they enough time. Yeah, yeah, if they could send something that, um, and again, I don't know how this would work. The engineers could figure it out. But, like, you know, it lands, and it's either, like, some kind of self-assembling dome or uh -huh. it inflates or something. And you could get some fungi in there. 
you know, the water would be the tricky part. You need some, some initially some yeah. water initially to get it going. Um, and then, yeah, that just see if, if you could keep it somewhat shielded from the environment because it, it's, you know, it's a, a very dry um, and very low atmosphere. So I think any moisture that got released would dissipate pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you could just monitor inside of that dome and see, does it start producing oxygen? Can you get the moisture levels up a bit? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, maybe after a decade, you could ship a couple ground squirrels, <laughs> teach them how to eat lichen. And, um, or actually, Arctic ground squirrels would be good. They, they probably eat that naturally. They okay. live up there. Um, yeah, see if you could get them in. And um, again, not that you'd need them there, but just it would test if you could have a sustainable colony of something. Um, are there research going on in this area? Like, are people you know, thinking about doing this even? You know, I think they talk about it. Um, you know, I, the, the, the downside, so aside from just saying it'd be interesting to do, uh-huh. and you, you could monitor the mammals while they're there, um, it's not like you could really train them to do a whole lot that, you know, in terms of research or anything like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure if there's a big, big push for it or not. I know I've been to conferences on living uh, life in extreme environments, and some of the presenters there were from NASA. Okay. And they, yeah. were, they were more talking about adaptations humans have to long-term space travel. Uh-huh. Um, but we did have some interesting conversations over beers about sending a squirrel to space or That'll something like cool, that. That would be cool, yeah. Once yeah. they survive, the second round can be other mammals and eventually yeah, a human, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so uh, for those kind of, uh, how to say, which are already pretty tough creatures, mm-hmm. can we, is, I'm talking about bacteria or something mm-hmm. like small, mm-hmm. can we actually breed them in the lab mm-hmm. and we create an even tougher or sure. like some environment we want to speed up the natural selection process mm-hmm. or yeah. evolution? Yeah, that's a good question. So, well, two things. Actually, the, the, it's an interesting question you raise. Um, some of these organisms that are adapted to these really extreme environments are, are actually hard for us to grow because we can't mimic those really— It's too extreme? Yeah, they, to we, it's hard for us in the laboratory to mimic that environment. Uh-huh. Um, so there, there are bacteria that have been hard for us to culture. Like uh, they, they, One example, I know they pull some up from uh, Lake uh, Vostok in Antarctica— so this okay. is a lake, a freshwater lake, that's um, under two miles of ice, and so there hasn't been it hasn't been seen sunlight in t- over two million years, because there's all this ice on top of it. They bored two miles through and took water samples from it, and they found thousands of different bacteria down there. But they're all living on this chemical chemical cycles. Uh-huh. Uh, well, it turns out with that it's under fairly high pressure, being under two miles of ice. Uh, there's no light, no oxygen, um, and when they pull those out and try to culture them, it's hard to mimic those conditions sometimes. They have to grow them in special chambers where they pull all the oxygen out and some high-pressure, high um, and, and then they're not growing off. They can't just streak them on a regular plate full of sugar. They, you know, they don't know what that is, so they're, they're mm-hmm. adapted to chemical environments and things. Uh, n- not all of them, but some of them can be hard to grow. Um, so that's the first challenge. Some of these extremophiles are just hard to, to grow in the lab. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's hard to, sometimes it's hard to do better than evolution. So you could think of, well, what tougher environment do I want them to survive in? But then we'd have to think, okay, what proteins do we mutate or what genes do we mutate to make them tougher? Uh-huh. Um, like I said before, nature's kind of already run that experiment. If you can find an environment, there are probably bacteria already living in it. Um, uh-huh. So the, the challenge then would be what environment are you looking for? And pretty much anywhere we've looked on the planet, 
we've found life. Um, Already. Right? So okay, any yeah. environment we could imagine on our planet. So then it raises the question, okay, the, the one that we haven't really, well, we haven't found anything yet would be outer space. So can you find things that can survive in, in zero gravity? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we know that we could we can take um, some organisms, we can put them out in zero gravity. They basically go into a, like a dormant state, and then when we bring them back in, in to a uh, regular environment, they, they come back to life. Mm-hmm. So we know they're capable of surviving being in space, but that doesn't mean that they're actually growing in space, like they're not dividing and replicating and metabolizing. Um, so that would probably be the next step, was could you find something that could actually like go through li- life processes in space versus just surviving mm-hmm. being in space. I don't know if that makes sense. What yeah, I'm it totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause there'd be things that like, if you took a human and threw them out in the vacuum of space and pulled them back in, they'd be dead. Yeah. Um, but there, there are some organisms that we can put out and bring them back. And yeah. Not only do you need to survive, you need to have functional right. purpose. Yeah. In, yeah. In so thing, like yeah. these tardigrades, um, they're the little, um, water bears they're a really really small um uh, animal Mm -hmm. um but incredibly tough they can handle radiation low pressure high pressure lack of food all sorts of things they just go into this little dormant kind of dried out state and then when conditions get good they pop back again so we know that you can put them in space bring them back in uh israel was sending a mission um to the moon and they had some tardigrades on on board and it crashed uh-huh. and spilled them all over. So we don't know if they survived the crash. Yeah, some people are joking. Actually, the crash was on purpose. Yeah, so. but they're, they're <laughs> probably tardigrades on the moon. And probably just anytime humans have gone anywhere, these things go with them. They're, uh-huh, they're uh-huh. all over the place. Um, now, so that means they're there and they might be in this dormant state. Are they going to um, be able to actually wake up? Wake up and move around. Is there anything for them to eat? You know, they, everything needs some kind of water at some point. Um, so you know it it's entirely possible you know maybe they there's they'll find a little niche somewhere that they can survive and grow mm-hmm. uh, and there's a little population living up there um, I don't know if we'll ever know that uh-huh. um, but it's it's not out of the realm of possibilities yeah so thinking of that actually has human be able to find any sign of lives on any other not that I'm space. aware of. So the thing they look for first is water, because as far as we know, mm-hmm, life mm-hmm. requires water. That's an assumption on our part, right? It Maybe there are forms of life that don't, um, but every l- form of life we know at some point needs some, some water, um, and preferably liquid water. But even if you have ice, there can be patches of liquid somewhere mm-hmm. that they could access. Um, you need some kind of energy supply, but we know now that doesn't have to be the sun. It could be chemical energy supplies most likely the first things we would find would be bacteria uh-huh. um, so you'd look for single cell um, organisms um, so we have not found any yet um, we've I mean pretty much the only place we've looked in w- with humans present would be the moon um, uh-huh. and that's not the best place to look because it, it really has no atmosphere to speak of and um, you know it yeah it's fairly small orbiting our planet so it, it, it's not as hospitable as a, as a planet mars would be the next most likely place to look um you know we've had the rover running around it's taken some samples but 
I don't know that it was really equipped to to actually find life itself. Are we even actively looking with some kind of equipment? Or right. Yeah. It's so just the, like yeah, by the, chance. Yeah. You know, the trick would be how do you actually find it? So I mean, one way would be a microscope. You know, mm -hmm. you'd have so any samples you collect, you'd have to look for micro microscopic. You could look for genetic uh, information, but that would, uh, we'd have to assume they had the same system we have mm -hmm. um, in order for us to detect it mm -hmm. uh, remotely. You know, if we got it in the lab, we could figure out how it works but if you're just looking around on a planet with a little rover you know you're limited in the the tools you have to actually look um and then the third would be just visually you know if you saw great big mounds of something but most bacteria well there are actually some really old um evidence we have when it used to colonize and form these big mats but a lot of the bacteria we see in in um in the environment are in the single cell forms um, so visually, you wouldn't know they're there, right? They're probably bacteria they're small, all over yeah. the place in here, but you just you can't see them. So um, it, it, it's, it would be tricky to pick up um, unless you actually physically have scientists there or you can bring samples back that they can look at in the lab. Mm -hmm. um, trying to do this remotely would be tough. Yeah. Cool. So you talk about a, a lot of interesting stuff about this kind of organisms and mm -hmm. extreme conditions. But again, this is from a class. So let's say if I'm a student who mm -hmm. took your class, Right, I will know all these kind of fancy like ideas and theories about this. Mm. Will I also have some opportunities to touch some of them, or you know, just oh, manipulate yeah. some of them? Or? Yeah. So that's a good question. So um, we we you can do that um, in usually mostly in, in independent research projects. So uh -huh. if you work with faculty members, um, and I show uh, lots of videos in class to show them some of these different critters and how they adapt to their environments. Um, but you know, some of the things I can't bring into class like today we were just looking at some that were like the kangaroo mice jumping around you know, uh -huh. in the southwest and, uh -huh. and so I, or a uh, lungfish that can wall up this one actually walled up into a, a mud brick uh -huh. it was made uh like an adobe brick and then when it rained it came back out <laughs> so you know stuff like that I, I can't do in in class um but one thing i do is i show uh when we talk about different organisms if we have a faculty member in our department who works on something related I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so like today when I talked about hibernation, I talked a little bit about my work and then Christine Schwartz who studies the brains and hibernating ground squirrels. Um, and so we, I talked a little bit about that and I told students, you know, if you're interested in this, here are some people on campus who are working on it. So that's probably the best way a student could get involved would be through independent or undergraduate research. Yeah. Cool, yeah, I, I, I bet a lot of freshmen, after they've seen this, they definitely want to do that when they're ready, right? So, I guess we'll find yeah. out. Yeah, this is the first time the class has been offered, the first-year seminar. So, um, But that was one of my goals was to, but, well, a couple things. One was to show students that there's just all these cool things out, and they've seen them on nature shows and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. but, but getting into it a little bit more systematically, a little more rigorously, you know, what are the adaptations, what, what are they adapting to, how do different organisms do it, um, so, you know, really dig into it a little bit, but then also just open their eyes to the fact that this type of research, there are a lot of things we don't know. This uh -huh. type of research is still going on. There are people here doing it. Um, there are applications to understanding humans, you know, so um, we're not the most interesting critter on the planet from a physiological perspective. And there are some, actually some, we will do some human examples, um, but there are organisms that can adapt to things that we can't even come close to, you know, we surround ourselves with technology and clothes and food and houses to survive in extreme environments. And these organisms just have, so basically we're changing the environment compared to we're changing ourselves. That, that's been yeah. our model. Yes. Our, yeah. our, the reason we're so successful, 
um, is tools. You know, we create tools to allow us to adapt or to exist in different environments. So we use our brain as a form of adaptation. So do you think this actually slows down our evolution because we don't have to adapt to the yeah. environment anymore? No, well, there's good. That's so. Yeah. So there's there's the school of thought that. Um, so evolution occurs through natural selection, which means you need to have some kind of challenge to individuals. A lot of them need to die we're, in order for that yeah, to proceed, in order, right, right yeah. to survive. Um, and so there's been some argument that with, well, with basically with medicine, sanitation, and, and food supply, um, a lot of individuals who would not have survived 200 years, 1,000 years ago, are surviving now. Mm -hmm. um, so we've reduced the natural selective pressures, and, and so humans stopped evolving. There are other people that would make, there's another school of thought that would make the argument that we've just changed the selective pressures. So that now we have a lot more chemicals in the environment. Um, we have people uh, are having children later in life. Like you know, so culture selection, right? There can yeah. be cultural selections. Um, yeah, so some, some uh, religious groups or ethnic groups or whatever um, have more kids than others. Mm -hmm. you know? So there, it's much, much more complex now. It's not as simple as you need to find enough food to make it through the winter. Uh, now there are all sorts of other things that can select whether or not individuals have children. And it's not survival of the fittest. It's actually reproduction of the fittest. So you could live to be 100, and if you didn't have any kids, and someone else lived to be 30 and had six kids, the person who lived to be 30 and had six kids is passing more of their traits on to the next generation. Um, so uh, we need to look at it a little bit differently uh, mm -hmm. than just survival, right? It's mm -hmm, not just mm -hmm. how many long are people living or meanings right all sorts of other all yeah. sorts of other things uh, have have an impact so uh, so I think we we are probably still evolving um, but not in the way we were even just a thousand years ago um, the selective pressures are much different now mm -hmm. I would probably even say 10,000 years ago when we started agriculture Simply just, just because we were too good during the past 10,000 years in terms of using tools, right? Right, yeah. right. Okay. So, but, but even then, we've shown that humans have changed over the last 10,000 years in terms of you know, size and stature. What's and the most mass. significant change we can visually think um, about? Yeah, so if you looked at humans pre-agriculture, um, they, they, we tended to uh, be bigger boned. Um, and there's much more difference in size between males and females. Mm -hmm. um, so males were much, much larger. Mm -hmm. Probably they had a, a hunter-gatherer had a pretty tough life, especially mm -hmm. in northern climates. Um, you know, they were hunting large, large mm -hmm. animals with hand, to, you know, hand tools. And extreme weather. Yeah, in extreme yeah. weather and all that. So it was, it was a very harsh environment. Um, uh, as we got into agriculture and people became more urban, it, those traits weren't as necessary. Um, and so um, our, our bones density and things like that, or bone size, I believe is the right word, have, have gotten uh, a little bit smaller. 10,000 years is a pretty short time evolutionarily, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you're not going to see profound changes like what you like you would see comparing Wait, us yeah. to like more prim primitive or ancestral humans, you know, Australiopithecus and things like that. You're not going to see that big a change in 10,000 years, but but there there have been some changes. Um, even other examples, um, metabolically, um, you know, we've seen uh, lactose intolerance in some um, uh, human lineages that we don't see in others, you know, based on, you know, did they cult, um, start to domesticate cows and, you know, raise milk or generate milk from that. Um, so you can see some short-term 
changes that way that have, a, have occurred since the advent of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, let's say this. I heard some interesting ideas about talking about evolution point of view, about, mm-hmm. you know, robot robots are going to replace us yeah. or cyborg a cyborg yeah. is probably the sure. next way to go like you want right. to engineer your arm to be metallic right but you can still have a, like a constructed brain mm-hmm. so do you see that is actually a possible or a, even a feasible way to to design our instead of saying selection natural right. selection sure. we actually do this in by design now yeah so again there'd be a couple ways you could so if you wanted to get into designing different humans i'm not going to say better humans because i think we're Yep, we're pretty yep. well adapted to our environment. But if you wanted to make some changes, uh, one would be mechanically or with a cyborg or, you know, um, putting some um, electronics into people, mm-hmm. which we do a little bit already with, you know, artificial hips and knees and all sorts of things like that. Um, so you, I, I think you could do that. Um, it's it's again like with most things it's a lot harder than people think so even if you put in if you give somebody an artificial hand mm-hmm. and they're trying to get them now to where they can move their fingers with brain waves um, it's very very difficult right for people they have to go through a lot of training to learn how to move their fingers on an artificial hand just with their brain waves they're able to do it now but it's it's really really cumbersome that could get better mm-hmm. um, in, t- in terms of those interfaces uh, but to the point where a mechanical hand would work better than your regular hand, we're probably nowhere near that point. To where someone would say, yeah, cut off my arm and give me an artificial hand. Make it stronger, faster. Yeah, actually, it, it's just it, not we're, feasible. We're, right? we're, 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 I, I won't say it won't happen, but we're nowhere near that now. You're, in fact, if, if somebody gets a severed hand, like in an accident or something, they still try to keep the hand and sew it back on because mm-hmm. that's sewn on back on hand, even if it has limited function, will still be better than an artificial hand uh, at this point. Yep. Um, so not to say it won't happen, but that I think we're still quite a ways off from that. The changes that are could happen today are with some of our gene editing technologies, uh, uh, CRISPR. In fact, we have students in our molecular biology lab that use this technique to alter genes and cell lines. Um, you could do that in humans, and there's there actually there was a um, a scientist in China who did this a couple oh, yeah. years ago. Oh yeah, that was not an ethical thing to do. Correct. Yep. So that's that's the well that's the issue with right with these technologies. Yeah. So they could go in and edit genes in an egg or a sperm, use it for fertilization, and now you've created an altered human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and there again this is a simple enough technology that undergraduates do it in our classroom um but we're doing it on cells we grow in tissue culture that we throw away at the end of the experiment we're never going to make them into a person yep. um and there are downsides to any experiment you do there are un- un- unintended consequences right so we know the gene we're trying to target but every now and then it misses and it goes and hits something else and it's those something else's that we don't know where it's going that if you now made it into a person, mm-hmm. maybe you wanted to fix this one gene, but you also altered another gene. And if you grow that up into a person, every cell you in can't the body throw them away. has it. Yeah. You can't throw them away. You can't. There's no undo button you know, once, once it's gone that far. Um, so those are technologies we have now where mm-hmm. we can go in and alter people's um, genes. Mm-hmm. And 
and we don't even have to do it at the embryo level where it's a whole organism. Gene, a lot of gene therapy now to treat diseases would go in and target genes in an individual. Yeah, for me, that's like obvious, like something we shouldn't be doing right. because of ethic issues. There are something we should be doing right. because it's basically, you know, benefit everybody. Right. So one thing actually I kind of feel like is on the boundary. Like mm -hmm. we should or we should not do is actually, can we use genetic engineering to extend people's life in terms of like just make us mm -hmm. live longer sure because i recently read a, a news about japan mm -hmm. like the japanese government actually put this one to be one of the first priorities of the government to oh. support research in stem cell okay to make sure that everybody can live like let's say 10 years longer right it's like a healthy sure population right yep so again i'll always say that there are two ways of looking at it so one would be we're already that's the good thing about being a scientist exactly right? <laughs> I, I got two hands so i can say one hand and the other hand. don't ask me um, to pick but yeah, i will yeah, tell you what yeah. happened if you pick this one exactly yeah. so um in a sense we're already doing this right with modern medicine right we're exactly already, we're already extending everybody's life 10 20 years uh just through um again antibiotics um hygiene uh, lots of drugs that we give now we've got now we cure we it used to be heart disease was number one killer in the United States. I believe I just heard that this year cancer has now taken over. And the main reason for that is um, statin drugs and um, ACE inhibitors for lowering blood pressure. Hmm. So we have people's cholesterol and blood pressure under control, and fewer of them are dying of heart attacks. If you don't die of a heart attack, you die of something else. So it's not that the rate of cancer has gone up. It's that the rate of heart attacks has gone down. And so now the number one killer is cancer. Um, and we're working on cancer too, but we use all sorts of inf technologies right now to extend life. Uh, in terms of uh, using uh, stem cells or other, so um, stem cells, gene therapy, CRISPR, any of these technologies, now you're going and you're biologically altering um, a human's um, body mm -hmm. so that it's not an external drug we're giving them to extend their life. Whatever is extending their life is inside of their body. And once it's in there, we can't pull it back out again. We can stop giving somebody a drug, right? If we find out their side effects mm -hmm, to the mm -hmm, drug, mm -hmm. once we put something in their body, we can't, right? And you so- You basically develop the circuit, the, the process, it, right? Well, in those your cells body. become yeah. part mm -hmm. of the body and you can't pull them back, mm -hmm. right? Once they're in there, you're not gonna go say, okay, I want those 10 cells out because they're gonna divide and grow. So any type of stem cell work, genetic engineering through CRISPR or whatever technology, gene therapy where we take a virus with the um, DNA we want and we put it in, then it goes and infects cells and puts the good gene in. Um, all those things, once we launch them in the body, you're not going to pull them back again. So I would lump all those together. Um, there's huge potential for those therapies. Stem cells would be one of them. Um, you know, if you have a patient who has a spinal cord injury or Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's or something where we could go and put, uh, we, we have a very hard time getting neurons to grow in the body once you're an adult. Yep. If any of those diseases, if we could go and get the neurons to, you know, where the spinal cord injury was, build new neurons or where you've lost neurons in the brain, you know, replace them, um, you could treat currently untreatable diseases. So most people would say, yep, that's a good thing. We should work on that. Um, at the same time, the technologies we use to do that, you could use to try to make somebody taller, right? Oh, yeah. You know, you could put in cells to try to do things like that. And so the the challenge there becomes when are we treating a disease and when are we doing, like, yeah, designer, designer yeah. babies to try to 
you know, give somebody an advantage. And we've seen with even things like these recent college admissions scandals, parents will go to a lot to try to give their kids an edge. If there will be some that if they saw I could, um, you know, my child could get uh, – this transplant when they're a kid and they're going to get a little more human growth hormone and be taller or and bigger smarter, yeah. or yeah, we don't, yeah, smarter is really tough one. Um, <laughs> cause <laughs> we don't know any genetic link yeah. there, but, um, w- whatever the trait was, parents could try to do that to give their kid. An yeah, edge. If you think about <coughs> cultural wise, like uh, we're talking about inequality here, mm-hmm. at least we got the inequality in terms of wealth, inequality yeah. in terms of environments, yeah. school, education, anything. But now if like richer people can live longer, right. Or if they can give their kids what's perceived as a advantage in society, yeah. then you have uh, genetic inequality. Yeah, yeah, that would be a big issue here. Yeah, 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 and it would be it would be expensive. I mean, it would be the kind of thing that yeah, um, probably only wealthy parents would do either with insurance or through their own private yeah contributions. Ethically, we're a long ways from that, but again, it is kind of a gray area, right? So some people would say, you know, obviously treating a neurological disorder or a birth defect or something like that is pretty straightforward. Yes, we should try that. Mm -hmm. Other things, it's more of a gray area. Is it more cosmetic or, you know, um, and that's an ethical, that's not a scientific question. That's an ethical question. How do you do that? And when do you do that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned like it's hard to grow neurons because recently I, I think I listened to a podcast. They were talking about something called brain organoid. It's basically they were trying to grow okay. a brain mm-hmm. out of a stem cell, yep. and they could never do it. Yeah. Somehow, after like uh, 20 generations or something like that, yeah. nothing started actually func- dysfunction as a brain. Right. So what they were trying to do is actually try to see if this thing can somehow show you some genetic features about this person. Mm-hmm. Then if you got a person with brain disease, you can basically start to breed a brain-like thing and try to see where it, go- it went wrong. Okay. Try to diagnose what's going on with the person's disease. Okay. But you cannot use that thing to actually treat people yet. Because yeah. it just, yeah. yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, growing, growing uh, tissues, uh, most, most tissues, if they have any type of structure to them, are really hard to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just a mass of cells, it's a little bit easier. Um, but most, uh, most of the organs we'd be interested in working on um, are difficult. So the ones we've been able to culture, and you can do graphs, you can take cells from a patient, manipulate them, and put them back, mm-hmm. um, tend to be a little bit less structural. So things like skin, um, liver, bone marrow, mm-hmm. we can take cells out and put them back. Um, things like neurons and, and skeletal muscle, um, things like that um, are, are a little bit more challenging. They need to unfold in a certain order, they're, right? They're, yeah, yeah they're developmentally, the, the structure is hard to hard to replicate so what you tend to get are just like you said blobs of cells Mm -hmm. and for some things that's fine you know if if they just need to express a protein and it doesn't really the structure doesn't matter that much but like wiring in the brain is very different and and actually with so with the brain that again here you have to differentiate if we have a neurological problem in a patient was it neurodegenerative meaning it happened in an adult the brain was fully formed Mm-hmm. And then it started breaking down. So that'd be like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or something. Mm-hmm. So structurally, the brain was okay when they were a child, mm-hmm. it, but it degenerated over time. Mm-hmm. That would be compared to um, a developmental disorder where the brain never formed properly. That would uh, be the genetic one, right? Yeah. yeah. So that would be one where it was inherited at childbirth and it never 
formed properly in the first place. So, uh, so somebody with Parkinson's disease might not have had any problem with development. It mm -hmm. developed just fine, mm -hmm. and then this happened afterwards, or like somebody having a stroke or something yep. like that. Yep. Um, so th you can end up with neurological disorders, but coming from very different ends. Um, and it's so more genetic or epigenetic. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So the yeah. So the developmental ones there, it could make sense where you could culture it, culture the cells and look at how they grow, mm -hmm. and try to get an understanding of what went wrong. But it might be that in an adult with a neurodegenerative disease, nothing went wrong during development. It all happened afterwards. Um, yeah. So it's it's a little more complicated than, it, like most things. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's always more complicated. Yeah. So let's go back to virus. I okay. hear this kind of, I don't know if it's like street science or okay. just science. It's just like uh, we, s as human, we use so many medicines or antibiotics mm. to mm. target a certain kind of mm. bacteria. So we kind of speed up the evolution process sure. for bacteria. Yep. And some people actually start to make a claim that hospital is a really bad thing because you, be you bring all the ill people together, sick mm -hmm. people together, right. who are guaranteed to have multiple species of bacteria and let them right. compete in a very closed environment. Right. So is that even just like, a feasible argument? Oh yeah, no, that's that's reasonable. Um, yeah, so well, so there again, two two things to unpack there. <laughs> so one's the the whole antibiotic use. So antibiotics are treat bacteria, not not viruses, um, but they get used inappropriately sometimes. So somebody sometimes a, a, somebody will come in with a cold. Um, it's a virus, but the doctor will give them an antibiotic. Half the time, it's just because the the patient says, you know, give me something for this and nothing else would work, so they give them an antibiotic. That's not that common. I think doctors are getting much better about that. Um, where we really overuse antibiotics is in agriculture. So we feed tremendous amounts of, ag of antibiotics to um, livestock. Mm -hmm. And two things. One is we have lots of livestock housed in a small area, so they're worried about infections. But there's also an effect that was noticed, I think, back in the 60s or 70s, that if you gave animals um, antibiotics, they actually grew faster. They put on muscle faster. So they, they're actually giving them to stimulate growth more than anything. And they use a lot of the same antibiotics in these livestock that they use in humans. Um, so basically you're just running a, and what we're speeding up a little bit is evolution, but what we're really speeding up is natural selection. Hmm. So we're selecting for the bacteria that are resistant to those antibiotics, mm -hmm. right? especially mm -hmm. when we have millions of people and millions of farm animals all getting these antibiotics, um, the bacteria that survive are going to be the ones that are resistant. Mm -hmm. And they're then going to go and spread spread around. Um, so, so misuse of antibiotics is leading to increased antibiotic resistance. Um, and we, we're basically just keeping our head above water. We get like these MRSAs and things like that. Um, that our methicillin resistant staph aureus, that was like our, our last, you know, antibiotic in the and there'll be multi-drug resistant antibiotics floating around now. The second part is by bringing all these uh, people into sick people into hospitals with these diseases, now we're just spreading them around. And there actually are pathogens that are more prevalent in hospitals than out outside of hospitals. Um, so you're more likely to get some of these infections in a hospital than outside of the hospital. And it's for the reasons you said, that you have lots of sick people, um, mm -hmm. and there's only so much you can do to try to keep them from, from spreading these infections. Um, there, there are doing things in hospitals. Um, some of them are less 
robust than others. I mean, they'll have people wear masks. That helps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They've found that um, actually having potted plants is bad because uh, there'll be soil. The uh, oh. Things will live in the soil. So a lot of them now, they're getting away from their plants and coming up with other systems. Uh, a lot of doctors have stopped wearing ties because uh, they would wash their lab coat, they'd wash their shirt, but they hardly ever wash their tie. Makes sense, And it's yeah. dangling out there in people's faces. Um, so, you know, th these are, again, minor things, but um, washing, there are lots of things about washing hands now. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. Yep. You just constantly and, and come here, glove, do stuff. Exactly. You have to yep. get rid of the glove, yep. yeah. Um, so, you know, I think there are things like that they're trying to do, but the, the fact is you're bringing a whole bunch of sick people together in a confined space. Um, and so they're, it's- So that's the best we can do. Those diseases yeah. are gonna be more prevalent. There's only so much you can do short of everybody, you know, being in their own building um, and not having the doctors walk back and forth between patients. Um, and, you know, for most people, the infections they're being exposed to probably aren't gonna be a problem. But the second part of having all these sick people in is you have these sick people who are, they might not be sick because they have an infection, but they're in a weakened condition from something else, and now mm -hmm. they're more susceptible to those diseases. So you have somebody come in who, you know, fell down and broke their hip, and they're elderly, and their immune system's weak, and now they get exposed to these infections in the hospital, and they acquire them in the hospital, whereas if they'd been home, they probably wouldn't have gotten them. So, um, yeah, so there's that as well, that the people who come there might be more susceptible to picking up one of the infections that you or I probably could go and visit people and not get. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So one bigger question. Okay. Um, my understanding for, let's say Felix, right? Mm -hmm. For the second thermodynamic law, mm -hmm. we were saying the entropy of the world is actually growing mm -hmm. one direction, never decreases. That means everything in the universe eventually will become from order, go from order to chaos. It's just like okay. not order. So that's like entropy law. Right, yeah. And the, what I try to imagine what happens with biology is actually all these lives are trying to organize mm -hmm. the environment together. So sure. we actually go from order, uh, chaos to order. Right. So now, given a big scale of time, let's say towards right. the end of the universe, billions of years, yeah. who do you think is going to win? Ah, well, so two things. Always, I always have two things. <laughs> so if you look on our planet, you're right. Entropy should be constantly increasing, um, but that's assuming there's no increase in energy input, mm -hmm. and we get huge energy input from the sun. Yep. So the reason we do have any of the structural organization that we have at the cellular level um, is because of this huge energy input from the sun. It's and not each, a closed system. It's yep. not a closed. In each in, in each trophic level. Well, it's not a closed system from energy. It's fairly closed system in terms of materials, right? Mm -hmm. Atomically, we're more or less. But energy-wise, it's a constant yeah. input. And each trophic level you go up, you lose about 10%, right? So we're very inefficient. But there's so much coming in that that allows us to create some level of structure from chaos. Mm -hmm. um, so on a on a our daily basis, we're not going to things aren't going to fall apart before us because of this constant input of energy. On the long-term scale, um, yeah, that that's a bit out of my realm. You should get a physicist in here, <laughs> astrophysicist, to talk to I will to ask you. them, too, yeah. yeah. I just want to see if it's from a biological Right, but, my, but yeah, my understanding, um, so the, the um, uh, galaxies and everything are moving apart from each other, and it's actually expanding at a faster and faster rate. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what happens? Does that just keep on going till things 
keep pushing the known universe. Yeah, and then it's either come out, back, start to shrink, back or they just, you know, who just knows? keep spreading, right? Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, but yeah, at some point in that respect, the the energy will have to dissipate. And, and for us, it'll be when our sun fades, right? So yeah. in several billion years when but our sun fades. But there will be probably other life structure go keeps carries our legacy be. just keep going right? could be yeah, could be possible. or we die out it's yeah. yeah so at that point once there's less energy coming to the planet then i think entropy would start to, to take over right we then things will unravel pretty quickly um but that's going to take quite a while in terms of it the the uh galaxy wise or universe wide i i don't know that it because again it i've heard both theories that yeah. it's going to expand and then it's going to contract back again um or it could just keep expanding and expanding. Um, but it, at some point, even our sun, you know, the energy being produced by it is going to wane. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But in the short term, on our day-to-day -day basis, we, Definitely. we can, we can, we can still that, yeah. be organized. Yeah, yes. okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually encouraging. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to worry about problems that which, which is longer than the history of human, right? So, right. Yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, do you believe in aliens? Do you believe in outer space life? Uh, oh, I'm sure there's some out there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, there's so many planets out there. Uh, the question were, and I can't remember who's, um, there was this one paradox about the odds of us ever. Uh, famous uh, paradox. Yeah, of something like that. Yeah, probability times probability times probability, right? Right, yeah. right. He would be the person to come up with it. Yeah, he was an interesting guy. Um, yeah, so I'm sure it's out there whether we'll ever encounter it, you know, the us being technologically advanced to receive a signal from another group that's technologically advanced enough to send it, uh -huh. it the probabilities of those occurring at the same at time, the same time, or within enough time that the signal could get from one to the other, that those are the probabilities that are very, very low. Uh -huh. But the probability that there is someone out, other group out there, and whether or not they're sentient beings or just, you know, primordial ooze. Uh -huh. um, you know, I, I'm sure there's something out there. So somewhere. probably it's a stupid idea to actually keep sending signals to hopefully our other people understand. I, I mean, I, signals I, I, I even, wouldn't yeah. invest a ton in it, but it doesn't hurt to try. Uh, so do you have a better way to look for outer lives? Um, well, I guess I, my question as a biologist would be, I, I understand that it, it'd be cool, right, as a biologist to try to understand the life that's out there. Mm -hmm. Um if we're doing it to try to find another place to live, mm -hmm. uh, my preference would be to try to keep the place we got because odds are it's going to be really hard to colonize another place and it would probably never be as good as Earth. Mm -hmm. And we could put a lot of energy into trying to not mess up are you falling with the climate change and all this? Everything, climate change, yeah. pollution, habitat loss. Give us, give us like a fill in your fill in your spot. Yeah. Um, so from a from an understanding foreign life part, it'd be really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, the people that think we're gonna go and colonize another world, and and that'll take because we've made this one uninhabitable. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's putting your energy in the wrong place. So, but so you're keeping up with all the climate change and everything. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. tell us like uh, your view on how bad it is, or how good it is, or should we even worry about it? How much should we worry about it? Yeah. About basically, the planet is trashed, and we are the cancer on the planet, um, which we I totally don't believe. I, but I, I yeah, can actually, some people say well, that. I could I could see arguments actually for all of them. Um, so, the concern I have um, right now, I, I think we're. You know, scientists have been talking about this for 
boy, getting close to 50 years now. I mean, you go back to the 70s and 80s is when they first started bringing this up. Who I mean, started it? Like physicists? Uh, well, it was motionographer um, uh, or like NOAA type people who study the atmosphere. And it okay. was actually, um, I think the gentleman worked at the observatory in uh, Kilauea in, um, on the big island in Hawaii. Yep. And he's the one who came up with the hockey puck graph and started. Because oh, okay. they're out, you know, out in the middle of the ocean, no, um, you know, industry around them or anything. And so they were measuring CO2 levels because they could get really clean measures of CO2 levels. Didn't matter which way the wind was blowing or anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they saw it steadily increasing. So he's the one who first, you know, started the alarm about this. And, you know, even if you go, I can't remember now when Al Gore selection was, that would have been like in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, he brought up inconvenient truth and all that. Um, so that was quite a while ago mm-hmm. you know that that was it, so people have been bringing this up for decades scientists and even some politicians um i think it i just saw a poll now it's just finally getting to where like 80 percent of americans believe in climate change and think that humans are a major cause of it so it's actually gotten to the mainstream now which is good mm-hmm. um the two questions that remain are um is it too late are they finally realizing the Titanic sinking, you know, when it's tilted 45 degrees? <laughs> yeah, say, so have you passed the threshold of are we past, there's no turning back? Are we past a tipping point? Yeah. And there are a lot of scientists that say we probably are. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're past the point in temperature where even if we could shut things down now, it's still going to be 100 years of temperature increase. Just mm-hmm. there's feedback loops yep. in it. Um, that would so that would be one thing. The second would be even though we realize that it's a problem, do we have the will to do anything about it? Mm-hmm. And this is going to come down to changing individual behaviors and getting governments to change. At least, oh, the, yeah. at the very least, get governments to admit that it's a problem. Um, and the very least, that would be the very least, <laughs> yeah. admit it's a problem, and then do something about it. Um, and those are huge societal changes. I mean, we're very much a carbon. Um, uh, fossil fuel based planet economy. or economy yeah. um, and we're among the worst in the world you know Americans in terms of our per capita consumption um, our whole cities and infrastructures are built around the car and single family homes with big yards yep. uh, and flying planes all over the place and eating beef so <laughs> you know everything <laughs> we do is you know you go down your checklist of things you're not supposed to do and that's Probably you have 50 what, things already on your list. We, yeah, we, that's you know. what we do all the time. Yeah. So um, now that so that sounds very pessimistic. Um, I think humans have the capability to turn around really fast if we want, if we make it a priority. Um, but I think that's the key. It has to become a priority. And I, I, I don't know that that's happened yet. And I think you need to, I think you need, uh, it almost has to be grassroots. It has to be citizens saying, yes, this needs to change. Uh, voting in politicians who will, um, put together bills that make it happen. Um, some of it's going to have to be some tough uh, decisions on our own side, like things like carbon taxes and stuff. Make Basically, it your life quality is going to go down. Not necessarily. Um, or, yeah. It's going to change. Yep. It's going to change. So, um, you know, if you look at most people, you know, let's say they drive an SUV that gets 25 miles per gallon, mm-hmm. would their life be any worse driving a Prius that gets 50 miles per gallon? Or even take a bus. Or take a bus or bike. Yeah. You know, probably not. You know, it's going to be different. It, they aren't going to get the, or do they need a 4,000 square foot house? Could they have a 2,000 or 1,500? Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
it, it's going to be different. It, it, and I think a lot of what we've done in the past couple decades have been on this excess, excessive. You know, the average house built in the U.S. right now is over 3,000 square feet. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, I grew up in a house that was 1,200. That's about what we live in now, you know, like 1,600. Um, you know, pe- people just have really, re- everything's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know that people are, twice as happy as they were 20 years ago when they were living in houses who were half the size or driving cars that were smaller. Um, so I would, I would actually flip it around and say, you know, prove to me that downsizing makes you less happy um, and mm-hmm. maybe focusing less on material things, more on experience. That's, that's almost like an educational effort. It's just like, it's not like downsizing is yeah. going to make you unhappy. It's just like if everybody's doing it, you right. see the benefit of doing exactly. it. You, it become more natural for you to doing it instead yeah. of saying like you know it's just a change of value. Right. right. And so I actually I've had this discussion with people, and, and we're in fact um, so at UWL um, we're uh, I work as a director for undergraduate research, and I just sent an email out to faculty this morning. Um, we're working on um, the sustainability projects with the city. So the city's pledged to go carbon neutral by twenty fifty. Yeah. Yep. And. Um, the initial, some of the initial people I contacted about this were actually more in sociology, political science, yeah. psychology, environmental studies. Um, I think the problem is dealing with climate change is going to, there's going to be less of a scientific solution and it's more human behavior. Yeah. Um, we, ha- we know a lot of the solutions right now. We know the things we need to do. Uh, we have the technologies to do them. Can we get better solar panels? Sure. We'll, we'll get better batteries and better solar panels. Um, but the quickest way to reduce energy consumption is actually not by creating solar panels and cars. It's by getting people to change their behaviors, yeah. right? Um, and that you could do overnight. We could do that next year. We don't have to build a whole new smart grid. People could start changing their behavior very rapidly. But it's still hard to do. Um, yeah. So I think it's more on us as individuals and less on scientists um, to, to make those changes. Yeah, for me, the pessimistic part is uh, if you rely on individuals. I think the only thing drives the individual's behavior right now, I'm thinking, thinking about the majority, is economic mm. value. Yeah, there's It's really hard for, yeah. unless you put in a lot of educational effort, which I don't know how. Right. It's really hard for people to say, it, for, for you to convince a person, let's say, just, you know, change the way. Right. This way is actually, I would still say, like, it's a little bit more expensive than what you had before. Right. But yeah. people just don't see that. It's just like, you know, I want my room, I want my space, and all the stuff. Well, so I think there are two parts. I always come back to two parts. <laughs> but you're right. So it's more expensive, or, or there, there's cost part. Yeah. But I think people are also being driven by kind of social norms. So it's actually more expensive to build a 3,000-square-foot house than a 1,500-square-foot house. Cool. So they, they weren't building that. They might have been building it because they wanted a little bit more space. But mm-hmm. at some point... It, it's big enough that you've got rooms in the house you're not even using. Yep. So they're not building that house because they need the space. They're building it because their neighbors have it or their, the brother, comparison their brother-in-law has it or yeah, something like social that. Connections. So I, I think a lot of it is more psychological. Um, yep. And same thing with cars. You know, They want bigger cars for whatever reason. Well, they're not always they're, you know they're using a pickup truck as a commuter car yeah. well they're not hauling a boat every day to work yeah. right they're they they could get by with a smaller car and you just have the truck for something else you know yeah for me that just go again that is going against um 
all the advertisement I'm seeing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. why why I bring it's up the economic. It's just like, hey, you to drive the economy to grow. Yeah. You need this direction, but kind of like you need to go the other direction to well, let so the there's, there's economy slow slow down a little bit. So there's personal economy, and then there's the um, national economy, right? Mm-hmm. So for a personal economy, you're actually better off ignoring all those ads and looking at what's important to you in your life and focus your resources there, and don't feel like you have to have the biggest newest everything i mean mm-hmm, I, we mm-hmm. drive a 15 year old prius with mm-hmm. three hundred thousand miles on it and i don't care it mm-hmm, gets mm-hmm. me to work um so there's that so you but i i'm avoiding all those car ads for 15 years on purpose right so my, you're like a exactly. strong person with well, strong mentality well, no, i don't right? know about that but I, it's just that's what you have to do yeah. to have that from an economic perspective you could say yes everybody buying bigger cars and bigger houses stimulates the economy um, but I think those are some false sentences of economy because they're not factoring in the environmental costs. So you're saying like for economy, instead of looking at GDP, you need to also factor in you have people's to factor happiness. In and, and pollution. Pollution and all the stuff. The climate yeah. change is the huge cost coming from yeah, that. That's really good. We don't, we don't factor any of that into our GDP. Yeah. So you're right. If, if so we're looking at the wrong number, basically. Right? We're, we're, yeah. we're not collecting the right data yeah. and, and, and putting it into the equation. Um, so if you do that, then some of these uh, green alternatives actually become cost effective. And it's even getting now to where um, solar and wind are actually comparing, competing on a level playing ground with fossil fuels. Yep. And fossil fuels are heavily, heavily subsidized. Um, so they're getting now to where Texas is the biggest wind generator in mm-hmm. the country. Mm-hmm. And this is oil country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and But the, the you know, the... Um, power companies, they sharpen up their pencils and do the math and say, well, actually, wind is cheaper for us now than, than oil. Yep. Um, and so that'll start to happen. Um, I think you know, more and more municipalities are putting in solar. Um, cities uh, are so that the local governments have to deal with climate change more than the national legislators, which is why the national people who are dealing with lobbyists are out of touch with mayors right yeah. so there are mayors in red states that are you know rebuilding levees for the fourth time or having you know their third hurricane in four years mm-hmm. um they're they're acknowledging climate change right their um, representatives in congress might not be yeah. but the mayors have to deal with flooded streets or you know fires or you know big snowstorms whatever it is yep. um you know increasing sea levels uh, they get it. They're the ones who are, are actually adopting yeah. things now that are trying to mitigate climate change. Um, so I think it just it's going to be, again, a kind of a bottom-up thing. It's yeah. going to have to trickle up to... Plus you have a, you are a multi-state country, and then you have multiple countries in the right. world. It's really yeah. hard to come down with an de- agreement, especially like... Yeah. It's easy for a developing country to see like, well, for the, all the developed countries, you're already rich right. you're by yeah. burning fossil. Yeah. For the past 50 years, now you just put a regulation on. Nobody yep. burn any fossils. That basically means stop growing right. as and a that's, country, that's right? A, that's a valid argument. And, yeah. and I think there, again, I think the Paris Climate Agreement was not perfect, but they tried to, you address, to, start those, from somewhere. They tried yeah. to address those issues. Yeah. Um, and that's why it was sad to see the, the United States pull out of that. Because yeah. um, we are the leader in potential change. We're also the leader in the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we need to be at the middle of that, I think, morally. Yeah. Um, because I grew from, I was born and grew up in China. Mm-hmm. So when I was born, like back in 1980s, back in 1990s, we don't have much 
I would say like, you know, stuff basically. Mm -hmm. So everybody's safe like crazy. Mm -hmm. It's like the first time I came to America, I just don't can't believe it. Like people leave the conditioner on when mm -hmm. they got when they're gone. The whole building just they just open the conditioner like day and night. Yeah. They put that thing at like a sixty degree or sixty eight degree in summer. Yeah. That was sound crazy to me. And you got all the electricity you can use without mm -hmm. paying and you got all this kind of hot water and cold water thing, which I could never imagine back in China. Right. And then people print like I don't know how 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 to even see that. It's just like they came back with like forty pages in there and just the whole thing was printed around, they just throw it away. Yeah. So when I was growing up, it's just like everybody is saying like crazy. Even in right. now, like China, like every time you leave a room, you close a light, not for yeah. your good behavior or anything. It's simply just to save the electricity because right. we still right. think that's a valuable resource. Right. But I can see that thing as like a cultural thing because we have been keeping that thing for like the past 5,000 years because right. people are just in generally poor back in yeah. China. Yeah. We got probably like a, uh, every three years, got a million people just die from famine. Right. So we know the scarcity of food. Yeah. We know the scarcity of everything. Mm -hmm. So we kind of like planted that thing into our culture. Right. And yeah, I understand all your concerns. Right. For me, I just, I still don't observe it. It's just right. like then people, especially when they're like printing like crazy. It's just like, yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't no, get I, the maternity I don't out think, of it. I don't think our, our nature has changed much. But actually, I'll, I'll ask you, when was the last time you were back in China? That was 2009. Okay, because I've yeah. heard it's changed a lot. Oh, it changed a lot. It, it, like, people now are consuming like crazy. Right. And it, think about the population base. Yep, and they're the leading um, producer of greenhouse. They just passed the United States. If now. you think about it, like we got probably six times or seven times bigger population than right. the United States, but yep. now everybody in China wants a car. Right, like, exactly. Not one car, actually. They want two cars, just because right. of whatever American does, we do. Right. So if they have two cars, we have two cars. Right. So you don't even understand. You don't have a house. Why do you want two cars? Right. right? You don't have enough road. I can give you some numbers, just like in Beijing, right? Mm -hmm. People are buying cars like crazy, mm -hmm. such that you need to have a special tag to be able to drive the car on mm -hmm. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Mm -hmm. And then you need another tag to drive it on Tuesday and, and Thursday and Saturday. Yeah. So, like, yeah. so if, I guess, yeah, my point is, yeah, the, yeah I, I think you're right. China for a long time was very um, uh, conservative with their spending and energy use and all that. Mm -hmm. But they've gone through a huge change now. And that's one of the concerns is if, a, a country that size the population that size especially yeah. and yeah. i think they're starting to get some pushback now too that the environmental quality had gotten so bad the air quality oh, yeah. that that they're investing heavily now in wind and solar trying to get the coal yeah. uh, plants down the confidence i have in back back in china was um you know china is a really china china's government has a really strong that's true control so yeah. if they say hey by 2020 we cut our emission by half right we can do it yep no, I, I agree with that. And yeah. the, but you need the government to be doing The government that. is, like, as long as they're yeah. starting doing stuff, like, nobody's right. going to, I don't think anybody's going to even complain. It's just like, well, back then we, we enjoyed the policy. Now it, yeah. it's our chance. Yeah. It's actually our turn to suffer. Right, yeah. So yeah. it's it's fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's usually those kind of, like Manu said, we won't have, like, protest to say, like, well, right. you're just asking us to sell our cars or anything. We, we won't yeah. have anything like that. We're just like, okay, if yeah. this is what the government wants, we just do it. Right, right. So, yeah, but, yeah, I think the agreement is, probably going to be the biggest thing yeah across different countries otherwise like if one country is doing this other countries are just like why yeah. are we doing this well you we're know, actually right? seeing that um so with the current administration they're rolling back a bunch of environmental laws and actually the businesses that should benefit from that are actually pushing back so if you probably follow in california uh, they are they're trying to lower the um uh car mileage mm -hmm. limits mm -hmm. uh, or so they're in um four different automakers made an agreement with California and they're going to keep California's levels, which are higher. Um, so the car companies actually want, they don't want to have to build cars at two different 
levels, right? Yeah. They don't want to build a fleet of cars that has a 40 mile per gallon average and one that has 30. Mm -hmm. They want to go with the 40. Uh, and they said as long as all the car companies have to do the same thing, it's a level playing field, that's mm -hmm. what they'll work with. Uh, the same thing with oil and gas. They just um, uh, tried to lower the emission standards for methane so yeah. to, to make it so they could release more methane. And the natural gas companies said, no, we want to keep them where they're at. Um, they want everyone to have to keep it regulated, and they know if it's going to have any future as a green energy when the next administration's in, mm -hmm. they need to have those regulations under control. They also don't want to waste it. They don't want to waste the, the methane. So you're actually even starting to see now the businesses that in the past you think would have wanted these lower regulations are pushing back when they're trying to get them lowered. So I think that's some hope as well. It, I'd wish it was coming from the top down. Um, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. the fact that it's coming from the bottom up probably means it has more staying power. Yep. So if citizens and states and governors and mayors and the public are all saying we want these standards, then they're going to happen. I mean, that, if you look back to the 80s with the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, mm -hmm. those came from grassroots organizations. That was citizens. So bottom up too, right? The bottom yeah. up. That was citizens saying, um, you know, in, well, California was the big one for um, uh, the Clean Air Act. They had such bad smog yeah. that you couldn't. San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, you couldn't breathe in L.A., yeah. Um, and the Clean Water Act was a lot um, from the Midwest. Uh, there were, you know, rivers catching on fire in Erie, Pennsylvania, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because raw sewage was getting dumped out into the rivers. Yep. And people said no. You know, they write us in now in the economic uh, textbook. It's yeah. just like, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, pollution so, is a big factor. Yeah, but those were big the things at the time. People said, oh, you know, it's going to kill the economy. You know, we have to blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. it, it was all fine. I mean, yeah. it, it, it increased the cost of things, but people now can breathe the air and they can drink the water. Um, so I think that's what it's going to take. Again, my concern with all this, I, I think in spite of the fact of being told about it for 40 or 50 years, I have a hunch we're past the tipping point. I, I think they talk about the new normal, and there's some scientists who are saying we can't even call it that yet because we haven't even hit a plateau. Mm -hmm. This We just keep seeing temperatures go up, mm -hmm. and they think that's going to probably happen for another couple decades before we even hit a plateau where it's the new normal. Okay. So we're not even to the new normal yet. We're, we're still on the upslope. And with all this kind of thing, you still think we, don't, we shouldn't try to go to Mars? As a priority? Uh, no, actually, I don't think so. Yeah, because I, I so honestly believe we can turn back, huh? Well, I don't know if mm. we can turn back. I, th I think that what we sh probably need to start focusing on is how are we going to adapt to a new extreme environment for humans to go back to our original topic. Is that even feasible? Like, let's say the temperature raised by two degrees. Yeah. So there are parts of the world that, based on, and again, this is not my, was my understanding of other people's research. But there are probably parts of the world that are going to become uninhabitable, um, mm -hmm. either because of high sea levels or they're going to become too hot uh, to where we can't even do agriculture and people just aren't going to be able to live there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to concentrate the world's population at the same time it's going up. Mm -hmm. So that'll be a challenge. Um, a lot of our big cities are along coastlines, and we're already seeing problems with that. But if the sea levels even go up 10 feet, you know, yeah, map. I went to Louisiana like five years ago yeah. and then revisited it just like, yeah. no. Well, in, in, in Louisiana, yeah. you know, it's big, but they're, uh, the whole eastern seaboard, you know, Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, right? Are they already at the critical level? Uh, well, there are parts of Manhattan that, yeah. Oh, um, well, with wow. um, what was the hurricane that went through? I can't remember now. The one Larry? That hit, or? The one that, well, the one that hit New York. 
And this storm surge came high enough, it flooded all the subways. Oh, right. Okay. And that was 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think it was Maria, maybe. Anyway, I, I get them all mixed up. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah, so, you know, sea levels go up another foot, and that could happen on just a big storm. Hmm. You know, so all the infrastructure that's built into a city like that starts to get to where it floods every couple of years, and those businesses, they're either going to have to shut down or build ginormous seawalls or something. Um, so, yeah, those are not far off. Those are, I think, things that we will deal with because we're it's so going to be on the upslope. For uh, Climate change is going to keep happening even if we shut off um, additional CO2 production. Hmm. Yeah, it's going to keep happening for decades. So I think we're, we should be putting our resources into changing human behavior to mitigate the risk. Um, but at the same time, we're going to have to start focusing a lot on how to readapt. And it's not so much, I mean, I worry about the rest of the critters on the planet, but I think we're actually making it where it's going to be inhospitable for us to live as well. Because uh, I recently talked to several people from economics, and all of them mentioned, like, the nutrient about behavioral Mm -hmm. uh, economics. It's more about, like, using the same kind of resource to get more out of it just by changing the way you do it to adapt to human needs and human desires and all the stuff. So, yeah, sounds like... Hopefully. I I think there's something there, definitely, yeah. Okay. Well, we already hit like an hour and a half. Okay. So how how about we just call it for a day? That's good. That's good for me. I think you got everything I know. Okay, great. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, yeah. that was very interesting. Thank you you very much. That was good.